today I want to dive back in and finish out the series we've been in, uh, entitled Intel. We're really looking at spiritual disciplines, and we're looking at the spiritual disciplines around a specific idea. I want to start you out with a phrase as we move into this. I would say, the, I want to give you an idea, that God leans towards those who honor what matters to him. God leans towards those who honor what matters to him. We're talking about, about spiritual disciplines. We're really talking about developing the, the ability to, to gather this intel out of Psalm 25. Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him, and with them he shares the secrets of his covenant. This, this concept that there are secrets available within this relationship with Jesus has captivated me my whole life. It's, it's like playing with an unfair deck. We are to be a people that live in the world, in the marketplace, having more than just good wisdom and a good ability to make decisions. We are to be people that live with, with intel, intellect, intelligence from heaven. You get to have an unfair advantage. That's what Psalm 25 talks about, and I love it. And we so quickly dismiss the idea like, oh, well, yeah, I'm just trying to make it and figure it out. I would love to tell you that that inside this relationship with the Lord, there is a, an ability to know stuff that you can't find anywhere else. And that's really where we, we jumped off and we've been looking at fundamentals and disciplines to help us, get, help us learn how to walk in this relationship. We took a look at Exodus 33, which says, inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Learning to walk in this relational encounter of a face to face or a friendship encounter with the Lord. And if we go back to the statement we began with that, that God leans towards those who care about what matters to him. I want to walk us through the disciplines that we've discovered so far. We've looked at the first one, which was let his fear govern you. And I thought, I thought Pastor Gary five minutes ago was going to like pre-teach the teaching. I'm like, no, stop, that's my line. <laughs> Talking about the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord means I just live my life based on the things that matter to him. Really, in our day and in our time, it's important that we understand that we are tempted and invited to step into opinions, stances, points of view, and all of us need to have the discipline right now to run those through the filter of, hey, Lord, what matters to you? At the consequence of laying down what matters to me. I would call us back to Jesus in the garden. I, this prayer is so important. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Let it pass. I don't want to do it. He's talking about the cross. But nevertheless, not my will. Yours be done. I will lay down what I want. This is the fear of the Lord. The second fundamental is just really simple. It's learn to talk to him. And I know that might seem immature or, or infantile. Learn to talk to him. But really, uh, the, the point of that for me is the word learn. That learning to talk to the Lord is a, is a principle and it's a discipline that happens by talking to him. Think about how children learn language. I've asked this question before. How many ladies gave birth to a child that had full sentence capability the moment they came out of the womb? No, it doesn't happen. 
Kids learn language by being around it. So by learning to talk to the Lord, we're positioning ourselves in a place where we're learning to hear his voice, and we're, we're letting go of the frustration and the discouragement of, I can't hear God. And I, I've challenged you this. If you say, I can't hear God, I want you to look in the mirror and say, I spoke a lie, and I'm sorry, God. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And so we learn to talk to him. And what I mean by that is we just position ourselves daily in that place to hear his voice. Last week, we took a look at, at the discipline of, of making a decision to study him, determining to study him. We talked about studying the scriptures, and I, I took you through some really simple scripture study tools. You can go to studylight.org. That was one that we looked at. You could use a, a multiple online references, the ability just to dig into the scriptures and be a people who are no longer willing to just be told about the scriptures, but to become a people that are willing to investigate them on our own. Because David will say it this way, I've, I've, I've hid your word in my heart, so I don't what? So I don't sin against you. Yeah. The fourth discipline, in my opinion, if we talk about fundamentals, how many played sports at some point in your life? How many know that your coaches generally said the same thing over and over again? They would just talk to you about basic movements. And so, why? Because we understand the principle that if you want to be successful in most athletic endeavors, the, the basic fundamentals of movement are important. How many golfers do we have in the room? Me too. Golf, golf befuddles me because I played baseball. So in playing baseball, I have this natural hip open thing. And when I golf, the ball goes there. I can hit it really far the wrong direction. It's the challenge of hitting it correctly that's tough. Why? Because I don't have the fundamentals. I don't understand a golf swing correctly. And I, I know that. And every time I think I do, I prove to myself that I don't. I go to the driving range and I hit cars on LeMay Avenue all the time. I found out that you're responsible for those. You actually have to be willing to insure yourself. And I'm like, I'm out. I'm not golfing anymore. That's going to be really expensive. Why? The fundamentals are missing. And so we're talking about fundamental movements. And the last one, I think, is the one that, if I'm honest, we fail at the most. And it's this fundamental of commit to loving him. Go back to our statement we started with, that he leans towards those who honor what matters to him. And I want to dive in and take us through some passages of Scripture. You see, Jesus talks about love a lot, and he talks very seriously about love, and he talks about a specific aspect of love. It's loving him. Our culture has made love a really hard thing to understand. And so I want to let go at this moment. I want to invite us, let go of your definition of love for a moment. Lay it down, whatever you think it means, and let's look at the scriptures and ask Jesus what love looks like. Let's see what he thinks it means. To do that, I want to go to John 14. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to John 14. We're going to be in verses 15 through 21. I want to read it over us. I'm going to just take a second. Look at your neighbor and say, I have a feeling this is going to be a hard one. <laughs> it's like when your dad tells you ahead of time, this is going to hurt. Now, my dad used to lie all the time and say, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I'm like, I challenge that idea. If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will never leave you. Okay, I got to push pause. I'd never seen this before this morning, first gathering. I read this, and, it, and all of a sudden, it jumped off the page. If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another counselor. I just want to drop an idea. Obedience to the king precedes an encounter with his presence. That was free. Okay. <laughs> See, the world at large cannot receive him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But it, because it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him, but you do because he lives with you now and will be in you later. So he's talking to his disciples. This is pre him going to the cross. This is pre his ascension. This is pre the Holy Spirit being released to, in, to indwell humanity. He says, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. In just a little while, the world will not see me again because he's going to pass, but you will, for I will live again, and you will too. When I'm raised to life again, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Can you imagine being a disciple, having Jesus say this to you, and how lost you would have been? We're so hard on these guys, and I'm like, they had no idea what he's talking about. They were like, yep, cool, sounds awesome. But listen to the way he ends this. See, those who obey my commandments are the ones who love me. Because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them, and I will reveal myself to each one of them. I want to focus on these two statements that he makes in 15 and 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and those who obey my commandments are the ones who love me. The word here for love, we, under, we, we know the word, it's agape, agapeo in the Greek. The word means to be fond of or, or to entertain or to love dearly or to welcome. He uses the word keep. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those who obey, same word in the Greek. It means to guard and observe. It means to pay attention to something unto obedience. So Jesus repeats this idea twice, which is, which is a, a Hebrew style of communication. It means that everything else he says, while it is important, the thing he wants them to understand the most is this thing he will repeat twice. And what does he repeat twice? If you love me, you'll obey what I say. And if we really look at these statements from just our point of view, they read like a fascist tagline. How many ladies in here are married? Let me see. Raise your hands. Even if you don't want to admit it, raise your hands. If your husband gets up tomorrow and says, look, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How's that going to go? It, it's not going to endear a gentle response. Yet this is what Jesus stands in front of them and says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If you really love me, you'll do what I say. Okay, so let me think this through for a second. Because if it's an ultimatum that, that is arrogant, or if it's a fascist tagline, we, we have to think through who said it. See, the one who said it is perfect and knew no sin. So it's impossible for it to have been an arrogant ultimatum. It's impossible for it to have been something born out of ego. Because he has no sin, no guile, and no agenda. We know this because we, we read the end of the book. And so... If it's not that, then it must be understood as truth. That what he's actually making is a fact statement that is truthful. If you really love me, you'll be able to see it in the reality that you do what matters to me. He's giving it as a, as a statement that we can use as a filter. I know that I love him if I do what matters to him. And when I'm not doing the things that matter to him, I know that I have a love problem with him. 
I'm just going to let that one sink for a second. You see, your life choices and actions, according to him, are to be ruled by our love for him. And when they're not, we would lean back into repentance. That keeps us in that love cycle. But there's another statement of Jesus one chapter later, because I can look at this, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and it forces my attention to be focused on my life and, and the way I'm loving him and what's going on in my heart, and it becomes a, a healthy, maybe, introspection. But then there's another statement just one chapter later that I want to read because it helps us understand how to put the first one into action. His statement is this, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Same word, agapeo. The Greek for one another means one another. It literally means each other. You look around the room, you look around where you're at in the marketplace, and John Maxwell will say it this way, with one small exception, the world is comprised of others. And so this is this, is this word that he's using. It's the idea of just standing in one moment and looking around in 360 degrees and we're seeing others. And he says, if you love me, not only will you keep my commandments, but you'll love others. And instantly with this statement, we realize that this love he's talking about towards him has to be displayed, has to be put on display towards those around us. And our tendency is to live kind of in an existential love, a conceptual love. And Jesus is talking about something that's far more active. In fact, if we want to actually get a picture and his description, we need to go to Matthew 25. So look at your neighbor and say, uh-oh, and go to Matthew 25. It says, but when the Son of Man, we're going to be in verse 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, so time out. I want you to understand something that's fundamental in theology. If Jesus said it, we believe it. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. So when Jesus says there is a moment coming when the Son of Man is going to come back to the earth, he's going to set up shop, and he's going to deal with humanity, you and I better understand that is going to happen. Just a thought. And he separates them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, we don't understand that very well because most of us don't deal with sheep and goats but the way, way a shepherd would separate sheep and goats is, is they have a pen, and when they would come into the pen, there's two directions, because sheep, if you've ever been around sheep and goats, I remember Pastor Gary one time when I was a worship pastor thought it'd be a super cool idea to have a living illustration on Easter, so he brought in sheep and goats. There was poop everywhere, <laughs> and I had to clean it up. And they were yelling at each other the whole time because they don't like each other and they don't do well together, especially in a room that's about this size. It, it just smelled like a farm and it was, it was a Easter to remember. <laughs> so when a shepherd will separate the sheep and goats, they come in and they, they use their crook and they push them to different sides and they go into separate areas of pen because they don't, they don't hang out together well. 
So he's using an analogy that they all would have understood. This was common for them. They saw it all the time. They knew exactly what he meant. It meant a separation. They were being separated based upon style. One was a sheep, one was a goat. I would love to say it this way. What we have to take out of this right now, for you and I, is there is an evaluation coming. That's what he's talking about. He says, the king will say to those on his right, okay, so push pause. There's an evaluation coming. Who's doing the evaluating? Him, the king. So he he looks to those on his right. That's the sheep. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So he's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about reward for sons and daughters. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the king will turn to those on his left, the goats, and say, away with you, you cursed ones. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Can I just push pause? Hell was never intended for humanity. It wasn't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believed in him would not perish. His goal was that all humanity be reached. And he says it right here. It wasn't prepared for you. Okay. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you gave me no clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Church, if we look at the context of what he's evaluating, remember we said there's an evaluation, it's him doing the evaluation. If we look at the context of what he's evaluating, he's not evaluating gifting. He's not evaluating passion for worship. He's not evaluating knowledge of him. He's evaluating love. You see, the word agapeo that he uses earlier, the easiest and most accurate way to understand it in English is a love that expresses to the benefit of others. His entire list is about meeting basic human needs. Hunger, thirst, hospitality, compassion, kindness, care, gentleness. Let's just break it down and make it really simple. It's what it looks like to be good to others. So now look at what he says next. How many are kind of catching on to what I'm what I'm laying down. But look at what he says next. This is, this is interesting. Then the righteous ones will reply. So they respond back to him. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? They're legitimately confused. Wait, when did we do this? Or thirsty and gave you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will tell them, I assure you, when you did this to 
one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. You were doing it to me. And then the cursed will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I assure you, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. I don't know how to set the stage for how serious this passage is any more than that statement. Because the difference between the righteous and the cursed, or those who loved him and those who don't, was revealed in how they encountered the world around them. I want you to consider some similarities. We see from their responses that neither party was paying attention. None of them knew what was going on. And I think that reveals an amazing truth that we have to consider. The righteous were living by a different mindset than the cursed. They were approaching life differently. They were approaching every day differently. Because I would love to submit to you that I think the cursed, if Jesus had asked, would have happily obliged. There was nothing in the narrative that tells us that they were hard-hearted. Because they said to him, wait, wait, time out. When did you need this and we not do it? Which is an indication of, we would have happily done this if you'd asked. See, the righteous made a decision to live towards the world with a different grace, not just a grace that could be drawn on, but instead with a grace that was actively looking to extend the character and nature of Jesus. And my question for us is, are we a people that are actively looking to extend his nature and his character? Or are we a people that sit in our, in our positions of life and say, hey, I'm happy to help. Just let me know what you need. Do you see the difference? One is willing to be drawn on. The other is engaging. I cannot find a way to separate this verse differently. How does all this play into the intel thing? Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. And with them, he shares the secrets of his covenant. You and I want to be people that have these secrets released to us. We want to be a people that sit and talk with him. We want people that study him. And the answer is, for those things to happen, we have to be a people that will love him the way he said to love. And that means that as I love him, it expresses to the world. I would say it this way. The time I spend with him teaches me how he deals with people. And I begin to deal with the world around me the way he deals with me. He's gentle. He's gracious. He's tender. He's merciful. And I begin to live this way towards the world around me. Not just in a mindset, but I actually begin to do it. I begin to see myself in other people's lives the same way I see him in mine. I'm here to be an asset and help you. What do you need? You know what, I see that need, I can meet it. 
we used to watch a cartoon in our house. I, think, I never can remember the name of it. Um, Big Weld, I think, was the main character. And the tagline was, see a need, fill a need. Come on, somebody who's younger than me, help me out. What was the name of that movie? Robots. Robots. There we go. <laughs> I just remember the grandma robot. She was hilarious. See a need, fill a need. Church, this is what Jesus is talking about, is changing our mindset with how we approach the world. First teaching, I was wrestling through. I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like we're hitting the spot, and then it just hit me. I learned to ask this question, how has he handled me? And I'm going to handle the world the way he handles me. And I'm going to see every person I meet as an opportunity to extend his love, his grace. Because I told him I love him. And the only way I can tell him I love him is if I'm willing to love them. You see, isn't that what he did? He told the father he loved him. If it's possible, take this away from me. I don't want to do this, but nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. You see, because I love you, I'm willing to love them. Let his fear govern you. Learn to talk to him. Determine to study and commit to loving him. Would you stand with me, please? We saved bread and cup for the end. Now you know why. I feel like it's an appropriate moment for us to ask ourselves this love question. Am I available to the world around me or am I reaching in actively to be who he's called me to be? This might be a time where it's appropriate to take bread and cup alone. I'd remind us when we take bread and cup, we are making a declaration about the king of glory who was crucified, who was buried, and who rose again. We're declaring his life. And I really think what we're saying is I align with that life. Church, I want this for us so much. I want us to be the people that walk around Fort Collins and Loveland and Windsor with this thing in our mind, how has he treated me? That's how I'm going to treat the world. So, Lord, we stand before you. We just step into this moment. It's a holy moment. It's sacred. Holy Spirit, would you come? We welcome conviction, we welcome encouragement, we welcome you to just search us and know us. Amen. Let's take bread and cup.